Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products in the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sector. As always, please do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists, as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and workflows of all of our products. Please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hi, my name is Laura and I work at Convensys as a Partnerships Manager. Join us at the NHS Oncology Conference on the 6th of June 2023 in Manchester. We'll open the debate on how the NHS is planning to lean on new models of delivery and innovation to help manage the current treatment backlogs and improve outcomes on a national scale. All tickets are free for the NHS to attend. To register for your free ticket, visit convensis.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 89. My name is Naman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by my fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Amanda Webster, who discussed her PhD research in motion management strategies for radiotherapy and the young estro track. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest today, Leanne Patrick, who will be discussing her role as a specialist nurse in gender-based violence. Hi Leanne, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to have you. So, could you tell us a bit about your current role and how you got there, Leanne? Yes. So, um, I suppose like many people in this role, although there aren't that many of us, I hadn't actually heard about this role before I happened to see it advertised. And I suppose that'll become a bit of a theme about what I'm hoping to get across today, actually. So, my background is in substance misuse. Um, I'm a mental health nurse. And I loved working in substance misuse. If I could do two jobs at once, or if I could be two people at once, I think I would do this and that at the same time. Um, But what I really liked was working uh, particularly with women, uh, women's trauma. That was a really common theme um, in the work that I was doing. And one of the things that maybe listeners might not know, because you kind of probably come from all different areas, is that here in Scotland, the fastest growing uh, group in drug-related deaths is women. Uh, and it occurred to me that there are lots of unaddressed issues and traumas that affect women that they are essentially self-medicating with, uh, with alcohol and drugs. Um, and, and until we can really get to the bottom of and start to process those traumas, we're not really going to be getting people to a point of recovery uh, and improving their outcomes uh, and really the outcomes for their children and their families as well. So uh, I loved that work and I just happened by chance to see this post for a gender-based violence nurse advertised uh, and between that role and being a bit of a mad militant feminist all over Twitter, some of you might have seen already, um, really I saw it and thought that's that's for me Um, and I applied for the job lucky to get it and I've been doing that now for about two and a half years. So Leanne what is gender-based violence? Uh, Right so we're covering quite a broad range of issues really in terms of gender-based violence. Um, Despite the title it's a bit of a misnomer in terms of what it is that I do. 
because gender-based violence very typically refers to violence against women and girls. It's kind of synonymous with that. But in my role, I work with um, men, women, people of any gender, essentially. So I'm covering more than just gender-based violence. But in terms of what gender-based violence is, it's um, essentially male violence against women and girls. And that takes many forms. It can be domestic abuse, it can be sexual violence, it can be uh, so-called honour-based violence and female genital mutilation. Uh, and the idea really is that it's based in women's inequality within society. So the greater the inequality, the greater the violence, and the greater the violence, the greater the inequality. So part of our work is about um, early intervention, prevention, working at community and systems level to try to address those inequalities that perpetuate the violence, but also working with um, you know, people affected by that kind of type of different range of types of violence, how it affects them day to day and trying to improve their outcomes long term. So that takes a lot of different kind of um, shapes and forms, but we're doing lots of different pieces of work in gender-based violence that cover early intervention, prevention, and then working with people who are living with that trauma or directly experiencing uh, violence and risk associated with that violence currently. How prevalent is it, Leanne? Um, very, actually, more than people would realise. So it's at least one in three women and girls in, um, well, around the world, actually, but just generally speaking, one in three women and girls will experience domestic abuse or sexual violence or any other form of gender-based violence in their lifetime. And if you want to get really technical, some of the UN women's studies, um, looking at the UK and the US, find that 97% of women report being sexually harassed. So I would consider that, and many uh, working in this area would consider that a form of gender-based violence also. So actually, it's incredibly prevalent, even depending upon kind of where you would sit on the spectrum of what you would regard as the kind of violence that we're trying to tackle. But if we think about it as existing within this kind of continuum of women's inequality and subjugation, the fact that 97% experience sexual harassment is not a benign issue. It affects more than people would imagine. It affects how safe women feel in the world. It affects the opportunities available to them. It affects their education, their outcomes, their life chances. So extremely prevalent, uh, I would say. And obviously, talking about around the world, especially with the UN, there was quite a big case in India that um, came out a few years ago. I mean, it was, quite, it was a while ago now, but I remember it being on all the newspaper front li like headlines, the nearby case of the the young the guy and um, his friend. She was raped on a moving bus at the back, um, and then it became quite a, a huge deal in the public trial, etc. It's, it's things like that which really highlights how... I don't know how horrific it can be and I'll say that's one extreme but yeah absolutely um it's definitely something that we have to think about and I think many people working in mental health and with trauma have to think about actually as a woman working with women and hearing these stories of trauma over and over day in day out there's always a risk for staff as well of that kind of vicarious trauma um, and because it's so prevalent, many of us working in this area will be survivors as well. So 
there's lots for us to kind of consider when we are supporting people working in this area as well about how we look after ourselves and say with that is the education around it as well isn't it so i grew up in india we never had any sexual education anything like that safe safe sex education um but actually then you could access pornography whenever you wanted and that shows a completely different light to an uneducated class of people but also to the educated class of people and obviously coming to this country and the safe sex education whenever it's about female health or genitalia we were told to leave the room so even that i don't know how far that's really come i think we've talked about this on the podcast before but it's just interesting that objectifying a person in pornography is obviously different to how safe sex or intimacy should be yeah and it's interesting because we're finding this is a worsening situation actually i mean many people will have heard about andrew tate for example and his influence upon um the, the ideas and values of uh, boys and young men at the moment and that intersects with the increasing availability of pornography and the ease of access and young boys in particular accessing that younger and younger and you know as I said that intersects with misogynistic influencers like Andrew Tate because he's one of many and he's just the latest in a long line uh, of people like him this is an issue that's been quietly growing in the background so there's definitely this issue of, you know, we can maybe try to tackle that from an education perspective. But I think when it comes to issues like this, like Andrew Tate, like the worsening pornography situation, um, we need to start being a bit more innovative. Because what we know is that young boys and men are not all that interested in the education strategies now. They're a bit too beyond that if they're in the grips of somebody like Andrew Tate. And it's very easy to be in the groups of someone like Andrew Tate because social media almost enables that for young people now. Uh, the way the algorithms work, if you interact with something, they will show you more of that, whether you're interested in it or not. You know, if you negatively interact with it because it shocks you. And that can present <clears throat> a really distorted view to young people of just how many people share the same view as you, just how common these issue are, issues are, if they're just kind of reinforcing the same message over and over it can present a really distorted view of how the world actually is so there's some research that suggests that even the average person can be radicalized by social media in six months based upon how the algorithms work these days but if we're thinking about impressionable young people particularly those whose primary source of information is consuming um, videos on youtube and videos on tiktok and maybe occasionally images on instagram it's incredibly easy for them to be um, radicalized is really the, the word that we're looking at right now by misogyny. So some of the concern that I have at the moment is about, you know, the prevention work that we're doing and how we become more innovative. So circling back to that education issue, what we know right now is that actually the best way to achieve this is not necessarily education, um, but thinking about peer support and role models for young people and how those people can almost de-radicalise or deprogram young men on what healthy masculinity looks like, what healthy relationships look like. It has to come from people who they admire, they respect and whose opinions they value because the whole idea about radicalisation is that you're very isolated from the kind of 
mainstream thinking and what everybody else around you kind of knows to be true. So it takes people that they respect and value and whose opinions they care about to kind of bring them back from that. And when we're thinking about this on such a large scale, we really need to be acting like yesterday on some of these kind of innovative approaches and we're very much not there yet. I suppose that's some of the issues around it whereby you actually have someone who feels that because they're exposed to so much of these conversations that is their mainstream so even within a societal view let alone if you were part of a family unit or a care unit where you actually observe some of this gender-based violence um how can we you know I'm just thinking of people who are listening to this podcast how can they try and make these simple changes around role modelling? I think probably the first place to start out for people who are listening is to think about the young men in their lives um, and the kind of awareness level that they might have of what media they're quietly consuming on their phones, on their laptops, tablets and, and where, where have you and how... Yeah, how aware they are of, of what they're looking at. Let's say if you're a parent uh, or a grandparent or um, a carer of some kind. Um, and then to think about, you know, what kind of relationship you have with that young person to be able to start having conversations very gently even about, have you seen, what do you think? Um, because young people will tell you what they think, especially if they really believe these things to be true. Um, they're not necessarily going to hide that they think. Um, these ideas and um, some of the things that Andrew Tay and Chloe Spouse are are really happening in the world because they're capitalising upon their vulnerabilities. You know, young men who want to have relationships, they're curious, but they're inexperienced. Maybe they want a girlfriend and they're not really sure how to go about that. If their kind of first encounter is, you know, through uh, media from influencers, telling them that actually you should be really careful around women because they might lie about uh that you might have you know raped them and actually the world is really geared towards women um and women's supremacy almost because they have better outcomes and men kill themselves more often and so they get this really distorted view so it's really important that people around young people understand what they're consuming to be able to have those conversations with them early and if they have that kind of relationship with them to make sure that they are having those kinds of conversations and then if they are concerned, I suppose, it's about, you know, how you link in with the people around them. Maybe, you know, how you link in with the school to think about what's happening at school level and what they're doing for all of the young people. It's never going to be one specific and simple approach and it would be hard to put it on to parents, carers and guardians to have the answer to this. But I think it has to start at least with them understanding what's happening and it has to start with them having an awareness of what their young people are looking at um, and what their understanding of these issues are. Um, perhaps they might already have that good relationship, perhaps they might be that role model and that close person to be able to have the conversation, um, but that's not always the case. And it's often the case also that parents don't know what is even going on out there and how social media even works. So we need a community level response to raise the awareness of everybody else so that they can have those conversations with their young people. To add another layer to that is obviously people's views of almost in a sense of like gaslighting. So there was the 
um, Channel, I think it was on Channel 4, there was a documentary around kind of sexual harassment. There was an undercover journalist. Um, I remember watching it and I think she had to stop it after that episode, but she pretended to be a drunk person after a night out, just walking home. And oh, it made me really sick. Really, really creepy people. Mm-hmm. Um, no one really stopped to help her, but a guy followed her into her hotel, right into her hotel room until obviously people came and yeah got involved but it it is just that easy and i think that documentary the the fallout on social media of people saying oh i watched that with my parents and now they understand what happened to me at university when i used to go on a night out it's really yeah it's quite scary to think that you know that that happened to something that was supposed to find out what was going on and it's exactly what happened yeah and you touched on something really interesting there about the woman who said her parents now understood what was happening at university because actually we still have this really outdated idea that women are the ones who need to protect themselves and uh, it's basically incumbent upon women to um, prevent these things by making sure that they wear things that aren't too revealing or not getting too intoxicated or not being in a certain place alone at a certain time but actually what we see is that it doesn't matter what you're wearing it doesn't matter where you are you know the vast majority of the time um women are abused sexually by people they know it's usually a partner or an ex-partner or a family member um and i don't know if you're familiar with the exhibition um the what were you wearing exhibition which is on a bit of a tour of the uk at the minute which actually shows what women were wearing at the time that they were assaulted and um you know well and also children you know there's the school clothes as well in that exhibition so it's really eye-opening about actually a lot of people are wearing a really broad range of things um and it kind of smashes this attitude that or perception that all these women must have been out wearing uh so-called skimpy clothing um but we live in that very kind of victim blaming society still and i see the sharp end of that in my work because a lot of the women that i speak to that manifests as self-blame as well that internal talk about what should i or could i have done differently if only i hadn't had an extra drink if only i had recognized the signs if only i hadn't been in that place at that time you know, there's, an, there's an, a normal psychological element of that where your brain is trying to find wh- wh- what was the danger that I could have recognised so that I can prevent that from happening to me again. But the victim-blaming society and the narratives that we run with and that we hear all the time in the press from our families, from our friends who, you know, perhaps well-intentioned are wondering, you know, how could women keep themselves safe? How can we prevent this? What can we do? Are, you know the unintended consequence of that is that these narratives loop in women's minds for days weeks months years even after the event and it shifts that focus entirely onto again what women can do to keep themselves safe versus what we do about perpetrators and what we do about attitudes in society that enable perpetrators I think as well, I'm just thinking from personal experience, when I was in my early teens um, and late teens going out and socialising, it was very much a social norm that you would get groped. You know, if you were in a bar 
or a club, I wouldn't have thought anything of it. And it's almost like a, well, that's something that just happens and it's something that you have to put up with. Um, and I think that it's that normalization, isn't it? It's so empowering now to think that people are being educated, but I still think we have such a long way to go um, to make sure that people aren't like me and think, well, that's just, that's a standard night out that that happens to you. Absolutely. And I think it has to happen across the board, really, um, so that we kind of get away from normalising this idea that it's just an inevitability and a fact of life. Actually, there are lots of things that we contribute to the narrative that, as I say, enable perpetrators to commit these kinds of acts because it's about, again, women's inequality, women's position in society. And these attitudes that place the blame on women are feeding into that sense of inequality. So there are things that we can do and shifting the narrative is a really important part of that and not assuming that this kind of fatalistic approach of it's going to happen, bad men exist and there's nothing you can do about that. Again, you know, most of the time it's somebody known to the victim, most of the time it's a family member, a friend, an ex-partner or a partner um, and it's A large number of men, certainly not all men, of course, but it's not, you know, this tiny minority that we imagine it to be. There's lots more going on that. We are struggling, I think, to have a really genuine and authentic conversation about, and it's about that inequality of women within society and how these things are enabled and how it shapes the attitude of more men than we would realise in terms of what is considered appropriate or what they think is I suppose what they feel entitled to really at the sharp end. Do you think there's something around cultural differences? Obviously where I was born and raised um, marital rape because of having arranged marriages is quite a norm. Um, The viewpoint of housewives is norm. You know, the man works and on the weekend they, they hang out together with the family. That's about it really. And obviously in some of the Arabic or Muslim background traditions as well, they can be quite strict around what women can do. So only recently, I think in Saudi Arabia, women can drive, for example. But then we've seen all the the protests in Iran of what's happened around females not wanting to wear headscarves or hijabs. It's it's quite hard to bring that into, I suppose, into Western society where females are a bit more open about their sexuality or about what society they can do in society, for example. Yeah, I think there are definitely cultural differences. I think it's a universal norm. There's no society, really, or country where this issue of, I suppose, misogyny and sexism and gender-based violence isn't prevalent. I suppose sometimes the danger in linking it with culture is... So one example would be, here in Scotland, we have legislation against female genital mutilation. Um, And that is not a universal thing. We're quite fortunate to have that legislation here, but there's only been one conviction in that time. And it was uh, a white man who had mutilated his teenage daughter after she disclosed to her parents um, that she was gay. Um, And the danger that we really encounter is that when people think it's a cultural difference, they feel really uncomfortable with having that conversation and framing it as gender-based violence. They just go, that's their culture. I don't want to get involved in that rather than this is still gender-based violence. Um, And it it almost takes on, I suppose, a racist element of that's a them issue. That must be their culture rather than actually it's gender-based violence. 
just manifest in a different place in a different way but it's still the same thing that we're looking at and we need to be able to um tackle it the same way maybe not exactly the same way different approaches to different forms of violence and different uh, manifestations but it's still the same root cause it's still about inequality so it comes back to that where women are most unequal there's more violence so the approach and the thinking is always going to be the same because the root issue is the same UKIA conference is back June 2023 in Liverpool for three days and is fully refreshed to respond to feedback from delegates to reflect the world we're living in today. Prices are lower than ever and start at £75 to access the full Congress and all content. They've changed the programme to focus on specialists for the generalist and top tips content rather than highly specialised topics from previous Congresses. There are more sessions on service optimisation, education and workforce. Something that we love is research, and it's at the heart of the programme. There's more proffered papers, sessions to present your work, expert sessions on refining research proposals and power pitches, and a dedicated research hub. If all of that isn't enough, there are themed hubs in the exhibition on service delivery, clinical case studies and innovation in action, along with more hands-on and technical workshops. Industry partners have added valuable education content on their stands too, you can also check out CPD outside of the programme in case of the day activities and view posters. There are streams aimed specifically at masterclasses for trainees, making UKIO the place to come for value for money exam prep, along with sessions throughout the programme aimed at students. The programme is available to view at www.ukio.org.uk, where you can also register and there are more than 100 plus sessions to choose from. Make sure you use the code RADCHAT25 on the booking page. And don't forget to come and check us out in our RADCHAT pod box. See you on the 5th to the 7th of June 2023 at ACC in Liverpool. So Leanne, from a healthcare professional perspective, what can we be doing to help support um, victims of gender-based violence? So there's quite a few things that I think need to happen because at the minute, we're missing lots of opportunities to uh, safeguard women and their families. And that's because we aren't recognising and having conversations about uh, abuse. So I think it's really important that we are making sure that all healthcare staff feel confident identifying the signs of abuse, that they feel confident asking somebody about whether or not they're being abused or if they're safe or you know how things are in their relationship depending upon depends upon your role what kind of conversation you're going to be having and also what you are seeing in that person in terms of signs and and it's important that we make sure that staff are then able to deal with a disclosure and feel confident knowing about what to happen if someone tells you whether you've asked them or they've just kind of told you um what you do with that because that these Three different things are the difference between somebody getting a good outcome and and not. And we know that there's not enough training available for healthcare staff, certainly not from healthcare-based specialists. A lot of it is outsourced to, and they are wonderful, of course, at Women's Aid. But what we need are specialists in healthcare that understand the needs of clinicians and what they need to be asking about and what they need to know and the levels of risk that they manage. as registered professionals. So we need training to make sure that staff feel confident and that's going to be the difference between them feeling able to ask 
and not because sometimes if we don't feel confident asking and we don't feel confident about what we would even do with the disclosure we are going to avoid asking at all because we don't want to open that Pandora's box and find ourselves in a situation that we're in our, over our head. So we just need to make sure that first and foremost, staff have that baseline level of knowledge and confidence to be able to do that. Otherwise, I think any expectation that staff do that without that knowledge and confidence is going to put them under extreme pressure and we're going to be making mistakes, having conversations that we're out of our depth with. And it's not as complicated a conversation as, as we might imagine, but that training is really key to addressing those concerns and making sure that we're getting it right for people. So I think that fundamentally, first and foremost, is what we need to get right across the board in healthcare because, like I say, one in three women are affected by domestic abuse or sexual violence. So all of us are going to encounter those women in our careers. Um, and it's important that, you know, we get it right for them. They're more likely, we think about really the sharp end of the spectrum where women are being murdered and domestic homicides. And that's happening at a rate of two to three women per week in um, the UK. And many more than that actually die by suicide as a result of gender-based violence. So we're encountering people, um, and particularly in the year before their death, they are more likely to require healthcare services input whether that's mental health or GP, A&E, various different services. It's really important that we're having those conversations, that we're confident about having those conversations with people and that we're confident about how we safeguard them to, well ultimately we're trying to save lives, that's our bottom line really. Um, and then of course all the other kind of uh, effects that we notice too. So one of the studies that shocked me the most that I kind of like to share is the uh, World Health Organization multi-country study that found that um, male violence against women is the leading contributor to death, disease and disability in women aged 18 to 44 and that is a really phenomenal statistic that I think should inform the way that we think about this issue in healthcare. It's a, a public health issue. It's a I suppose a, an, an unaddressed pandemic that, you know, at the sharp end, we're hoping to save lives, but actually women's health, women's mental health and how that affects their families, their whole communities um, and the outcomes that we all have, really. Um, it affects everything. So it's really important that staff are able to navigate those situations and because we have a huge potential here to make a massive difference to women, families and whole communities by getting this right. In oncology, we had a young female cervix patient who wasn't really getting on too well with the treatment because of chemo radiation, which is understandable, but also had lots of bruises. And she just kept saying, oh, I've, you know, it's because I'm anemic. Following it through, obviously, I did her, oh, I did like an on-treatment review in the kind of in the treatment room and just said, okay, how, how are you managing with your partner at the moment? And that's when you could tell her face went white. And it was actually, even though I've got cancer, I'm still being pressured into her being intimate. Um, and I think that's quite a big challenge. And I'm not saying it's obviously gender-based violence, but the pressure and the guilt um, when you have a partner and they're not quite understanding a cancer diagnosis or any kind of multimorbidity um, diagnosis is quite hard. I think I struggled a bit of how to handle that information as a healthcare professional. So I was quite... I suppose young in the role 
and thought, okay, well, it's not quite cancer related, but it is an important issue. So I've witnessed gender-based violence. I've been a victim myself, so I understand a bit of it. And I, you get that kind of anger, which I'm presuming you might, you might be better at controlling than most people in this role. But as a healthcare professional who's quite junior and you witness that, what, you know, what, what should we be doing in that moment to protect that vulnerable person? I think anybody who feels uncertain and anxious should always try to um, at least reach out to another member of staff or a line manager to have that kind of conversation. It can be really daunting um, and it can be, like you say, when you're junior and and really, uh, actually, this is not unique to junior healthcare staff. So we have routine inquiry of abuse, um, which should be rolled out across um, midwifery, health visiting, um, substance misuse, mental health, a variety of services. <coughs> <coughs> I have to edit that, edit that bit out, but um, it's not unique to junior staff that we need to be making sure that staff feel confident having those conversations because actually those staff members who are expected to have those conversations still find it incredibly daunting because we still, even for those people where we expect it and we expect that they know it, don't provide them with good quality uh, training to support them to navigate that and it makes such a big difference to people so I would never take on that kind of I would never pose, impose upon any member of staff that they should automatically know what to do in a situation like this I would always hope that they could reach out to um, supervisor another member of staff in the team to have that conversation but the reality is that you might not get great advice from them either unfortunately so that's why it needs to be the case that we really focus on training because it may just be the case that people are going to continue to have worse outcomes and we don't get this right for people despite our best intentions, however junior or senior we are, until we get that key component right. Leanne, would every trust have someone in a role similar to yours or someone within the trust that they could refer patients to or at least seek help and advice for themselves in supporting a patient? So I would say we're quite a niche role. Um, there's really only a handful of us and we're all in Scotland who are gender-based violence nurses or nurse specialists. Um, but every health board or trust will have an adult protection team or lead. And they will always be the kind of port of call for any concerns about any form of violence or safeguarding when it comes to adults, of course, um, child protection for young people. So you can always speak with them. They will have some remit for um, safeguarding in this area. Um, I wouldn't be able to comment on how kind of much they cater to gender-based violence and what their approach will be, but they always will be a good place and a port of call for you to get advice as a clinician um, to think about what your kind of next steps would be if you are anxious about what to do. Because there are lots of things that you can do to safeguard people who are at risk. And sometimes those things can involve breaking confidentiality and making referrals without the permission of the person that you're concerned about. But that requires quite a bit of confidence on the part of the person making those referrals and, and breaking confidentiality, because that's a really significant thing for us to do in healthcare. Um, and someone like your adult support and protection team will be able to guide you um, better than most people, I suppose, uh, in a service 
uh, or a trust where you're not sure if there are any kind of specialists uh, on how to navigate that. What do you think about paternalistic medical models that we are seeing within the NHS at the moment and it is being highlighted within research projects you know how can we address some of those issues that that we're finding are still existing and still very prevalent it's definitely an issue because it's one that translates right down into patient care so I often talk about hierarchies within hierarchies so as you kind of touched on paternalistic models really in which medics um, are the top of the tree in that sense and even though now what we see is the number of um, doctors um, are not um, majority male anymore actually we've got quite a number of women in medicine it still has that gendered history and the kind of privileges that are afforded to um, the profession as a result and so it dominates in the medical hierarchy and as a nurse you know um, we certainly I don't know about yourselves as um, radiographers but we certainly feel that hierarchy and where we sit in that hierarchy and especially as a majority female profession how that manifests for us but I talk about hierarchies within hierarchies because to be a woman in medicine does not mean that you feel that inherent sense of privilege but I suppose that's how it privilege and intersections work you may have it over a female nurse and even a male nurse to some extent but you won't have it within your own kind of profession as a woman where you'll be experiencing well if uh, social media is really anything to go by quite a lot of sexism and sexist attitudes uh, and discriminatory attitudes uh, and we still see very gendered um choices I suppose or gendered areas of medicine as well so uh, gynecology for example um, general practice family focused women oriented appearing um, gendered typologies I suppose of different specialisms it was something that I touched on in my master's research so I looked at women's experiences of disclosing um, abuse to healthcare professionals but I also looked at um, the gendered typologies of different professions and so how they were perceived and read uh, and described by people in literature um, based upon you know whether they were uh, a feminine or a masculine um, specialism and those typologies very much exist within medicine. They very much exist, you know, out with medicine, like nursing, for example, as a whole. But then even within nursing, we have, um, you know, acute A&E, which is more masculine. So there's lots of, as I say, little subsections, and those roughly translate against the hierarchies as well. So the more masculine or the more male dominant the specialism or the field, the more they dominate within that hierarchy or within that hierarchy within the hierarchy so we definitely still see that and its influence is really significant upon all of the professions the healthcare system as a whole and how that translates down into patient experience and patient outcomes because what we're trying to move away from really as a whole system uh, and as a whole team are these paternalistic attitudes that position clinicians as doing something to staff as uh, to patients and really to each other it's 
you know, a collaboration, a co-creation and a co-production is really what we're trying to move towards. And for so long as we have these uh, gendered hierarchies, we're never going to get there. And what my research found was that really even at the sharp end, when women are trying to describe to healthcare professionals that they've been victims of abuse, um, <clears throat> their experience of that is almost universally awful. We are getting that wrong almost every single time. And that's women who, on the whole, are describing historic abuse. And what tends to be happening, I find, is that women will disclose abuse to a healthcare practitioner because they are looking for some adjustments in their care or they're perhaps disclosing to a mental health professional because it's still affecting them in their day to day. Um, and as I said, their experience of that is almost universally awful. There's lots of victim blaming, there's lots of dismissing attitudes, and actually there's lots of re-traumatisation because we are navigating this so terribly. And so much of that is really laden with these victim blaming attitudes and paternalistic approaches to care where we do things to patients. They're coming to us asking for these adjustments, saying, for example, I was raped and I am coming for a gynae procedure and I would really like it to be female only staff. And they're essentially being given male staff despite this or being told they've got no other choice it's this or nothing because there's only a male member of staff on that day so I suppose it's the intersection for me of you know these victim blaming misogynistic attitudes that exist at society level and how that as I say intersects with this paternalistic attitude of we decide we dictate what care looks like this is what's on offer to you you can take or leave that and that, you know, as I say, we're trying to get away from that. There's lots of good pieces of work and lots of good people trying to get away from that and move towards person-centred systems and healthful cultures that consider um, and really put the heart of, uh, put patients at the heart of the kind of decision-making um, and care process. But we're a long way from that in reality. Uh, and research will show you that time and time again. And scandal after scandal will show you that time and time again. Leanne, why are you so passionate about this area? <laughs> Nobody's ever actually asked me that question before. That's a good question. I think, you know, actually, before I came into nursing, I would not have described myself as a feminist. In fact, as a young, cool woman growing up, I was not a feminist. Being a feminist was uncool. I was a cool girl. Really, I'm quite embarrassed looking back. I had a lot of excuses for the things that um, are so blatant to me now that I could dismiss out of hand back then as not related to feminism, not unique to women, things you'll hear from women and men all the time now. So I think that puts me in a good position to be able to try and counter some of those narratives because I remember exactly what I was thinking back then. And I think what's changed for me is partly age, um, and partly coming into a profession like nursing where it's really hard to escape from the reality of even though we are a majority female profession, the men in that profession progress faster, further, with fewer qualifications. Um, and despite that, we're continuously subjected to a narrative that men in their profession are 
uh, a vulnerable minority and that we are discriminating against them. We need to do more to encourage men into nursing because it's a shame for them is essentially the upshot of the narrative. And actually, from the research that we can see and from just walking through the path of a woman in nursing, there could not be anything further from the truth. You know, right from, from my first placements, the women were treated differently to the male nurses in terms of what opportunities we were offered. Um, I remember I um, was nominated for an award as a student nurse and I think there were two other female student nurses who were also nominated for awards um, but the university wanted to include a male student in the um, advertising they were putting out about this kind of success for the university students to I suppose show representation that male nurses uh, exist but he hadn't been nominated for an award and one of the things that essentially happened around that is they were looking to put together a video an interview of all of us together but I wasn't able to make um, any of the times they put together so eventually they went ahead and did this interview with two of the women and this male nurse without me and I just remember thinking the focus here is very heavily on you know we will have promotion of men at all costs it doesn't matter if this person's been nominated for an award or not it's more important that we do this than that you an actual nominee are included in this and that we find a way to make sure that you're included and I think the more that I go through the system and then see what happens to single mums uh, nurses affected by gender-based violence the more I can see how different those experiences tend to be um, and how incongruent the rhetoric we're seeing actually is and that's you know far be it, you know far from my own kind of anecdotal experience that's what the evidence tells us as well so I think that kind of set me on a path of rethinking a lot of the things that happened in my life um, and again I think age is part of it as well I when I look back now I can see so many examples of you know really terrible things that happened to me that uh, you know would fit the description of gender-based violence but that I wasn't able to recognize or willing to recognize at the time was part of a pattern of gender-based violence or could be considered that rather than an isolated incident lots of isolated incidents it can be very hard I think when you are in the forest sometimes to see the trees in front of you or to see the forest for the trees I suppose is the, the phrase it's easy to not know what it is that you're looking at and not have the words or the framework to um, describe it and I think that's the case for a lot of young women it's easier to imagine that these are isolated incidents that we have some element of control over them that things are better than they actually are than to confront the very difficult reality that things are still pretty terrible for women uh, even in a country like the UK that is so you know developed and affluent and our opportunities our outcomes are still so significantly affected by this so I think this matters to me because um, I suppose I've gone through some kind of personal reflection on 
and I have had a lot more experiences now, um, you know, the older I've gotten, and I'm in a position to be able to reflect on those previous experiences and pull together the general theme of actually, this is gender-based violence. This affects far more than just me. In fact, this affects, um, as the UN studies would say, potentially 97% of women in this country alone. Leanne, you touched on very modestly an award, but you've also won a very prestigious Queen's Nursing Title Award. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, So I have always been a community nurse. And in fact, from being a student nurse, I knew I wanted to be a community nurse. I knew that working in wards was not where my passion was. I know many passionate ward nurses, but that is not what sparked curiosity and interest and, and enthusiasm in me. I wanted to be out in communities, seeing people in their homes, seeing people in their kind of um, their daily environments. I wanted to be part of prevention, keeping people out of hospitals. Um, and so I have always admired the work of the Queen's Nursing Institute and I was always aware of them to some extent. And I think I had hoped that maybe, you know, 10, 20, 30 years into my career, it might be something that I would aspire to. Um, so I'm really surprised to be, well, three years now, I've been a nurse, three and a half years maybe, to be sitting here doing this programme in Scotland uh, with the Queen's Nursing Institute in Scotland. It's um, genuinely a real privilege to be able to say that as somebody who, as I say, has admired their work and admired what it is that they do to advocate for community nursing. Um, I'm hoping that it'll give me the opportunity to spread the word more about gender-based violence, to advocate for what nurses can do in particular um, in terms of gender-based violence and how we can lead some of the conversations on what needs to happen in healthcare to improve outcomes for women and families and communities so I'm, I'm seeing it as a really great you know it's a huge honor but also a huge opportunity to to do good in a, an area uh, that I really care a lot about thank you Leanne your passion definitely comes through I think it's obviously been maybe a triggering episode for some people listening or reflecting on experiences etc but it's really really important um, and I think, although you've given lots of good tips, it would be good to get a few to finish off with as we come towards the end. I don't know if you have three top tips to give to people listening. Yeah, I would say um, if there's somebody in your life that you trust and that you feel safe with, then uh, please do go and talk to them about the things that this might have brought up for you or that you may be struggling with otherwise day to day. It's not uncommon somebody to to struggle with that you're not alone and there's certainly nothing unique about that in fact some people can struggle with those experiences for years and even decades uh, after uh, something has happened to them so please if there's somebody that you trust and uh, you care about please speak with them there are also organizations that are available to talk to you to give you advice as well uh, depending upon um, what your experience has been we have rape crisis uh, and we have women's aid and we have the national domestic abuse uh, helpline as well and they're available to give you advice on um, 
whatever it is that feels important to you right now, whether that's getting support, getting help, get into a place of safety. Um, they're available to you and they have lots of expertise and they've spoken to many people in the same situation who will be able to give you, um, if they can't directly help you, they'll know the right place for you to go. Um, and I suppose the final thing really is just to uh, look after yourself. That's a really trite seeming thing, but a lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, blame themselves for the things that have happened in their lives and, and think about, you know, what could I have done differently? What could have prevented this? And that's a really normal psychological response. It's you looking for a pattern or a, a way that you could identify something that happened that you could prevent from happening again. Um, but it's really important to be gentle with yourself, to be good to yourself and to look after yourself and to recognise um, those thoughts as they come but not necessarily to give them the power and the weight that they sometimes can have over us. Because if my experience has taught me anything, it doesn't matter who you are, how wealthy or affluent you are, how successful, what you were wearing, where you were, what time of day it was. Um, it happens to all of us. And there's nothing, unfortunately, um, that we can necessarily do to change what happens to us but there are hopefully things that we can all do together moving forward that will make things different uh, and create a safer society where we can all um, work together and appreciate where the issues really lie thank you leanne that was a really nice way to end i think something I forgot to bring up in the podcast as well is there are some places specially trained around annie action needed immediately that's right um so you can ask for Annie as well if there's anyone if you're struggling or want to signpost someone for help as well um but yeah thanks everyone for listening to Rad Chat so your hosts today have been Naman Jokansen and Joe McNamara if you're utilizing this podcast for CPD purposes please consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate please complete the google form linked to the podcast so our next guest to feature will be Claire Hutton We'll be discussing her role as a radiotherapy manager. So thank you for listening and take care. Join us, Rad Chat, at Oncology Professional Care, an award-winning event for the whole oncology community, returning to the Excel Centre in London on 23rd to 24th May 2023, a multidisciplinary and multi-professional event which breaks people out of their professional silos by delivering free CPD certified education for all healthcare professionals working in oncology. Joe and I are excited to have steered and influenced the programme as part of the advisory board with support from key organisations such as NHS England, Macmillan Cancer Support, Bopper and more. There are over 130 plus sessions of carefully curated content focused on the whole patient pathway across five dedicated theatres. Keynote speakers, living with and beyond cancer, early diagnosis and screening, clinical excellence in surgery and therapeutics and advanced cancer treatments. There are many reasons to attend, such as discovering cutting-edge developments in cancer treatment, understanding how genomics and personalised medicine can become part of the bigger treatment options, make sense of an evolving policy landscape direct from the National Cancer Team at NHS England with keynote address from Dame Kelly Palmer, gain insight into what's happening in early diagnosis and screening to improve early detection of cancers with sessions on fit tests, HPV vaccination and targeted lung health checks. There are some specific focused clinical sessions for 2023 on head and neck cancers, blood cancers, breast cancer and bowel cancer. 
One of our favourite aspects from RadChat is that you'll be able to hear inspiring patient stories along with their real-life experiences of living with and beyond cancer. If that isn't enough, you can join the hands-on hub and enjoy interactive, practical sessions to bolster your technical skills, as well as visiting the pod box with us here at RadChat. Visit the event website to find out more, and we look forward to seeing you on the 23rd, 24th of May, 2023 at London Excel Centre.